Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about palliative care with Dr. Laura Morrison. Dr. Morrison is an associate professor of medicine and geriatrics at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Laura, maybe we could start off by you telling us a little bit more about what exactly is palliative care? I, I, I get the sense that there is still some misperceptions about what the term really means. I think that's a common point. Um, it's something that a lot of people still wonder about. So I'm really happy to, you know, give another sense of of what it is. Um, palliative care is a medical subspecialty that focuses on quality of life for patients with serious illness of any type and their families. Um, and we also focus on relieving suffering. So again, it's really about quality of life and relieving suffering as much as we can. This all takes place in the setting of an interdisciplinary professional team. And we really focus on physical symptoms, coping and the stress that patients and families deal with around serious illness, as well as trying to streamline and support good communication for patients and families so they get their questions answered as well as possible. That, that sounds like, you know, a combination of, you know, pain medicine and psychology and uh, a, a bit of social work mixed in. Um, tell us more about how that works and how that's different from um, people's usual doctors who also may be very interested in their quality of life. Right, right. So, um First of all, you know, we really hope that all healthcare professionals get some training in palliative care and that they provide what we would call primary palliative care or basic palliative care. So these are, you know, just really good um, primary skills in addressing basic pain management and providing a really you know, initial level of support and around coping, um, as well as some, you know, um, really nice early communication support as well. Palliative care goes beyond that in terms of being very specialized. And part of that is because we do have a team model of care. Um, not all institutions are equal in terms of how many, how much resource support they're able to put toward palliative care. But in our setting at Smilo and across Yale New Haven Health, we're really focused on having a robust team. And for us, that includes social work, chaplaincy, nursing, both at an RN and a on advanced practice nurse level. We also are very fortunate to have our, 
team psychologist, as well as a pharmacist and art therapist. So this is, you know, a, a very broad approach. And I think the special part about it is that, you know, we acknowledge that pain and other symptoms are sort of a total phenomenon, meaning that um, people can have pain and anxiety and, and depression that is in different domains, meaning the spiritual, the physical, um, emotional. And so our different team members can play really important roles in addressing symptoms across this kind of spectrum of suffering and really trying to, again, improve quality of life. Yeah. You know, as you think about suffering, particularly of our cancer patients, and many of them have symptoms, whether it's symptoms related to uh, treatment or whether it's symptoms related to the cancer itself, one can't help but think that the whole COVID crisis kind of exacerbated um, that suffering, especially when you put it into those domains of, you know, not just the physical suffering, but emotional suffering, uh, financial suffering, um, all of the things that COVID kind of brought to the forefront. Did you find an uptick in the need for palliative care during the crisis? You know, I think you're absolutely right. COVID sent us something that we were, um, you know, really challenged by, especially initially figuring out, you know, how we could best support both our colleagues and our patients and families. So um, I think the need shifted. I think at first we weren't sure because of just the exposure issues I know how to still be as helpful as possible. But I think um, what really happened was, of course, as we all know, in the earlier surge, there was such a, a concern about how sick people were. And of course, um, unfortunately, a lot of people were sick enough that they were in a place where they were um not able to get better and we're dying. And so for us in particular, we were really um, brought in for physical symptom management, especially around shortness of breath, which is where, you know, we saw COVID hit, hit us all very hard. Um, so managing shortness of breath for people that were really suffering with that and trying to improve their day to day. Um, and in cases where people were sick enough that they were dying, we were really pulled into trying to, you know, be present with them as much as possible, but to really be involved in reaching out to their families um, trying to help our medical colleagues in the ICUs um, with, you know, spending extra time being available to families, especially, and to really try to help there be some contact before someone died. Um, so, you know, that was challenging in a different way, for sure. And fortunately, I think 
now that we've gotten on top of COVID and learned so much and people are really, you know, doing a lot better now, certainly not as many people are dying, but we still have those roles currently trying to, um, you know, still be present to have these harder discussions and prepare patients and families for what can happen. I actually just took care of a patient a week ago who um, was in her 90s and dealing with COVID and in isolation um, and was actually in a mode where the patient and daughter were accepting that she might not live through this COVID um, episode for her. But in fact, she um, has been able to be stable and come through that and actually come out of sort of a comfort focused time. And now we're focusing on how to think about supporting her the best we can for her to ultimately try to recover. So things are a little different now. Yeah, I can imagine that particularly during the COVID crisis and and even now for patients in isolation, um, that comfort and that support and that communication, particularly with the family, um, must be really difficult. I mean, how do you how do you do that? when both the family wants to be with their loved ones who are facing a, a potentially terminal crisis and, and, and patients themselves are, are suffering and dealing with more than, um, more than the usual um, because not only do they have their, their physical symptoms but also the emotional isolation. How do you, how do you kind of bridge that? Um, and and um, be with with the the patient and be there for the family as well. Right. It's um. I mean, it's such a privileged place to be. It's awfully difficult as well. But I think all of us on the team, whether we're you know one of our chaplains or one of our social workers or nurses. <clears throat> I think all of us just try to bring, you know, 110% of our presence to um, open up conversations, to just try to give people the space and opportunity to express, you know, the deepest part of what's weighing on them and what they're they're most worried about um, and to acknowledge the sadness, the heaviness of the situation. Um Sometimes we're able to be in person with the patient. Occasionally, if someone really is um, seemingly in a place where they may be dying in the next hours to days, um, family may be able to visit briefly. And we try to be present for those opportunities and to advocate for them when possible. We've also had the opportunity, obviously, to use technology and um, have families, you know, through FaceTime or through Zoom, um, you know, be able to see their loved one. Sometimes that person can respond and sometimes they can't. Um, But to, you know, I think we try to always make it as personalized a situation as possible. Sometimes there's music 
that is meaningful to the patient or family members. Last week, I had a patient who um, was dying um, and the family was able to, you know, let us know that that person really enjoyed jazz music um, and we were able to have that present. And, you know, it, it seemed to be part of the the quality that we could add to the to a sad situation for sure. Um, I think, you know, we've had earlier when we had more people who seem to be facing death, um, we, you know, had a lot more technology and a lot more Zoom meetings. We would have occasionally a family who would get connected from around the world even, you know, and be on Zoom together. And sometimes they would stay on for 12 or 24 hours with their loved one um, until they passed away. Um, so, um, you know, it's such a time for, to reflect on what matters to people and to try to help families be able to focus in on how much time we think we may have and and really what is possible to try to make things, you know, a little more meaningful to everybody. Yeah, it's so important, particularly at the end of life. And, you know, but for families, that that suffering, the suffering that the families go through doesn't end um, when their loved ones pass. In fact, it sometimes um, is just starting to surge their own grief um, over the loss what about palliative care for them? Does your role continue or how does that work? Yes, thank you for asking that question because it's so important to acknowledge what you just did, that really there's so much more to the journey for family members, especially even after someone dies. Um, so we're very fortunate within our Yale New Haven Hospital System and Smilo, that within our palliative care program, we do have a bereavement service um, that's been really a critical part of what we do for a number of years now, at least three or four years. We have two, um, two full-time social worker bereavement specialists who work within our program. And so when we do have a death on our service, um, we, we let our um, bereavement coordinators and specialists know um, about that particular family. And then they're able to follow up. We have a number of really wonderful um, support group opportunities, as well as um, the option always for a referral for more formalized counseling or psychotherapy as well, you know, within our community. But I think the really important first step is just to make sure that we do have that follow through to be able to check on families and to really check in with them specifically um, weeks after to just see how they're really coping and to acknowledge, you know, all the normal parts of grief and and the bereavement process. So that's absolutely critical to our community and something that I think is unique that we are able to really bring in that regard. 
great. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about palliative care with my guest, Dr. Laura Morrison. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Laura Morrison. We're talking about palliative care. And Laura, you know, before the break, we were talking a lot about how palliative care has a role in supporting patients and families, um, particularly at, you know, the time of of, of death and, and when patients are really suffering. But I think one of the, the misconceptions is this whole idea of palliative care versus hospice versus death panels. Can you kind of clarify where palliative care sits in this whole spectrum? Yes, absolutely. It's an important distinction. So palliative care, again, is for any patient with a serious illness and their family. Um, That's a pretty broad group, Um, but not everyone is referred to us. So, um, but theoretically, anyone with a serious illness could request palliative care through their physician. Um, So palliative care can be involved for that, you know, extra attention to really improving quality of life and relieving suffering. That's part of many people's experience with serious illness. And so with palliative care, we essentially we coexist and co-manage our patients together with their sub with their specialist physicians and primary care doctors. So for SMILO patients, that's that means that we're often co-managing with the oncologist or the hematologist. Um, Hospice is a separate entity. Hospice is an opportunity for patients and families when a patient is coming to a time in their illness where their life is likely going to be limited in time. And so if someone has six months or, or less likely in their disease course, they may become eligible for hospice. That happens in conjunction with making decisions usually to um, to steer away from more therapies that would prolong life. And so it's a time when people are really focused on comfort and really having as their primary aim the quality of life and comfort focus and potentially no longer pursuing 
curative or life prolonging therapy. And so hospice is a time when usually people are not as involved with their oncologist or hematologist anymore. So the distinction is really that palliative care can enter at any time and stay with people, even if they are able to be cured um, or just have a, a long period of time in their illness course. And so I, I think that that's really um, important because palliative care then does not mean that um, there is any sense that uh, your life expectancy is is uh, somewhat limited. It simply means that you have some suffering, whether that is physical suffering, emotional suffering, spiritual suffering, you know, um, or, or other needs in terms of uh, communication or, or spiritual needs that um, could use uh, the services of a, of a dedicated interdisciplinary team. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Yes. Um, I think it's really, I think it often starts just with acknowledging how, what a change it is for people to be diagnosed with a serious illness and how stressful that is. And simply the stresses of being in the hospital and not being in your own um, realm of control in the same way. So it, it really starts at that very basic human level of just acknowledging that things are really changing for somebody. And as you pointed out, we do have that full, that full interdisciplinary team again. And it may be that one, one member of our team is a little more relevant at a, at one time or another. Um, but we do have the full team to draw upon. So for instance, we have some, uh, patients, many patients in active treatment. And sometimes our real goal is just to get them through their active treatment in the best supported way possible. Um, and that may mean that they're coming to an art therapy group, you know, while they're getting treatment for their breast cancer or their uh, acute myeloid leukemia. Um, uh, it may be that at a later time they're coming into our clinic when they come in to see their hematologist because we're helping them with pain or their fatigue. Um, so we do have an inpatient and an outpatient presence as well. And, and I think that that's so important, particularly now um, <clears throat> during COVID when, you know, the real thrust uh, was to try to manage patients in an outpatient setting as much as possible. So for, for patients who are not in hospital, um, who may be at home, um, tell us more about how the outpatient uh, palliative care services work. It, it seemed from our earlier, <clears throat> excuse me, discussion that the inpatient uh, service was really, you know, this multidisciplinary service integrated with the uh, the managing team, the, the oncologist and together managing patients in the hospital. But for patients who are at home, how do you how do you do that? Um, is that by virtual visits? Um, how, how does that really manifest? We have a really um, vibrant palliative care clinic that is located um, in 
New Haven within Smilo. So people come in to the fourth or eighth floor usually. Um, and then we also have one of our colleagues sees patients as well out at a number of the care centers. So out around New Haven and North Haven and Guilford and Trumbull, um, Torrington even. So there's, you know, a fairly good access to our services. Um, as you're pointing out, the COVID situation has altered our practice patterns there as well. And we've kind of, we've come in and out of virtual and in-person visits a couple of different times with the surges. But, um, you know, eventually, obviously, we hope to be back to mostly in person. But I think we all acknowledge that virtual visits are going to carry forward with us. Um, at the moment, the majority of our um, clinic visits are virtual um, at this time. But, you know, you schedule an appointment with us just like you do with any other clinic. Um, if they are in person, then we often try to pair them up with someone's oncology or hematology visit um, so that people aren't making multiple trips. So we really do try to be um, wary of, you know, those extra burden issues for patients and families. So when As you, you think about of care and, and alleviation of suffering, whether that's pain or fatigue or nausea or any number of um, symptoms, physical, emotional, or otherwise, you know, some patients may be at home and, and suffering that way. Is there such a thing as home palliative care um, where, where, you know, people can, can deliver um, therapies uh, at home? Yes. So it follows a model that is similar to home nursing services that we typically get through Medicare and or um, private insurance. So people can have what is called home palliative care. It's um, typically through the same kind of agency that um, a regular home nurse would be set up, but these are specialized um, groups within that. So a number of our local organizations in the community around Connecticut have home palliative care services. And what that um, looks like for patients and families is really a, at the most, a daily visit for an hour or two, perhaps, um, they can also include physical and occupational therapy services within that. But the nursing component um, often isn't even every day. It's sort of based on what the need of the patient is as far as the frequency. But these are typically nurses who may have had a prior, um, prior opportunity to do some hospice work or may have a particular interest or training in more on the palliative care side. And those skill sets are quite similar. And they, they bring a more holistic approach to really assessing um, and trying to manage symptoms. The management part is still handled by a physician who is, you know, covering and, and um, supporting that nurse who's doing the in-person visits. Um, often that kind of nursing service 
would um, exist on its own. For some patients, that might then later transition into a hospice type of approach as well. And so you mentioned insurance briefly, but expand on that a little bit more. In terms of palliative care, you you had said, you know, anyone who has a a serious illness can request palliative care. But I'm sure many of our our listeners might be thinking, geez, this sounds like this is yet another cost with a, a specialized interdisciplinary team, whether it's in the inpatient or the outpatient or the home setting. Is that yet another medical bill that's going to add to the financial suffering that people have? Are these services generally covered by insurance? Thankfully, yes. Um, Palliative care is considered a medical subspecialty just as infectious disease, cardiology, you know, neurology. So the that part of the financial picture is really handled in a billing fashion, just like any other subspecialty, even similar to oncology or hematology. So there is, um, for the most part, that would be covered by a private insurance as well as Medicare and Medicaid. Dr. Laura Morrison is an associate professor of medicine and geriatrics at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.